Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Let me introduce two of our special guests tonight. First of all, Dana Newkirk, a practicing hedge witch with more than two decades of experience in seeking out the strangest cases of the unexplained. Dana began her career by forming the first ever all-female paranormal investigation team back in the 90s, the subject of Space's Girly Ghost Hunter series. In 2013, she co-founded the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult, for which she still serves as head curator. Dana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. And, of course, Greg Newkirk is one of the world's only full-time paranormal researchers and has spent the last couple decades tracking down and investigating cases of high strangeness in the supernatural, conducting groundbreaking research on everything from alien abduction phenomena to poltergeist hauntings. Greg is also the co-founder of the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult, and again, the world's only mobile museum of the unexplained. And hello, Greg. Good to have you with us. Oh, pleasure to be here, George. Thanks for having us. You were with our old colleague Dave Schrader a couple of years ago, weren't you? Both of you we were just were. Yeah, a good guy, dear friend. So let's talk about the paranormal, and I'll I'll talk to you individually for a while, then just both of you jump in anytime you want. But Greg, how did you get started in this? Well, Dana and I quite literally grew up investigating the paranormal. We've been doing it for twenty years, driving around at night, listening to coast to coast on our uh, journeys into haunted houses as kids, and then we started to get more serious about it. And uh, about three years ago, we said, well, let's give this a crack. Let's see if we can do this full time. And we launched the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult, and now we pretty much uh, spend eight, nine months out of the year on the road traveling uh, from coast to coast, uh, presenting haunted objects, collecting haunted objects, uh, helping people with... uh, any kind of paranormal problem, investigating pretty much anything, you name it. Do you go all over the country? Oh, yeah, literally, uh, coast to coast, uh, California to Maine, Florida, all over. Well, now, what do you drive? I mean, a traveling museum to me sounds like you pick up something in this huge truck or van. What do you What do you have? <laughs> well, believe it or not, it is a Volkswagen minivan. No! <laughs> We're very good at Tetris. I love it. I love it. And Dana, what is a hedge witch? A hedge witch is, I mean, a lot of people kind of have different ideas about what it is, but really it's usually someone who associates a lot with uh, the natural world. So they work a lot with medicinal herbs. They work a lot with things that you can find in nature. And um, that kind of becomes one of the major aspects of their magical practice. You sound like a good witch. Can there be bad witches? Um, I think just like people. There's good people yeah. and bad people, and I think that really it's all about the intention behind what you're doing. So, yeah, I think absolutely there can be uh, bad witches. And, Greg, as you travel around the country with the museum, do you find that more and more people are fascinated by all this? Well, I think that we're in a really good climate for people to be fascinated by it. I think we're seeing a, a resurgence in the last few years of uh, people getting more in touch with uh, the spiritual nature of things, and they're more interested in, in that type of thing. And I think that more than ever, they're less afraid of it. We're starting to see people who are uh, becoming less scared of the idea of the, the unexplained and the paranormal. It's becoming more of a, a normal thing. Uh, that's one of the things that we're constantly, you know, it's one of the biggest messages of, of the museum that we run, is that most of the time, these things uh, that people are afraid of, um, they're just trying to get your attention. And so I think we're in a, a perfect place 
for the paranormal right now. In the paranormal work that you've done, Greg, have you ever come across anything that even scared you or something you didn't want to get involved with? Uh, quite a few times. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, there's things that uh, I think you'll find with a lot of these things, you don't really have much of a choice but to get involved. Sometimes you're, you're dragged into it. Uh, and that happens uh, at least a few times a year. Um, you know, we've got artifacts in the museum that have caused nothing but problems for people, uh, car accidents, uh, things that are believed to be cursed, uh, things that we've quite literally, earlier this year, we had to actually take an artifact back to a cave in the Catskill Mountains that had been stolen from a few years before because it kept, uh, it kept hurting people. Wow. And do you find that spirits and ghosts attach themselves to, to items I think, uh, you know, there's, there's, our opinion on this is a lot different than a lot of our colleagues. I think that what happens a lot of times is there are intelligences out there or there are pieces of us that exist uh, somewhere in some kind of a, I guess for, for lack of a better word, a cloud and uh, times of high emotion, um, times of stress and trauma they can almost make a, an upload to that cloud, and sometimes that attaches to specific places and things. I mean, a, a building is the biggest haunted object of all, and so I think that uh, times of intense emotion create this kind of attachment that when the time is right or, or the date or the place or the person, uh, they can tap into that and then they experience that haunting. And Dana, of course, uh, you and uh, Greg have put together what is called Hellier, a five-part documentary series about the Appalachian Mountains. How did you key in on the, those mountains? Well, we were originally contacted back in uh, 2012 by a man who was experiencing some strange activity on his property, specifically around uh, a mine shaft that was on his property. And... Um, after, you know, years and years of kind of looking into this case and really digging into it, we started to notice that there were a lot of uh, similar types of instances happening up and down the Mammoth Cave system and in and around that area. Uh, sometimes people would refer to them as goblins. Sometimes people would call them holler goblins. Sometimes they would have completely different kind of local names for them. But a majority of time, uh, the the things that were happening were all the same. So we were able to kind of put together this map, I guess you would say, of where exactly this chain of events was happening. Greg, was there a specific case that led you to, to the uh, Appalachian Mountains, or was it just in general? Well, uh, where we were researching, actually, the name of, of the documentary is the name of the town where this case took place, Hellier, Kentucky. They have a and town called Hellier, Kentucky? It is a town called Hellier, quite the name. Oh, my and God. And it, it's really interesting because one of the things that we had just found out is that the name Hellier actually means to obscure, to cover up, uh, which is what we think was, was happening in this town. Uh, there was a guy who, uh, like Dana was saying, there's a guy named David who sent us photographs of three-toed footprints uh, that were coming out of a mine shaft. Uh, these these things that he saw, his children, they were tapping on his windows at night, and they described them as little naked children that were bald like grandpa, and they sounded quite a bit uh, like the the Sutton farmhouse attack that happened in Hopkins Hopkinsville, Kentucky, back in uh, the fifties, and so. Uh, Everything seemed so similar to that case that we started looking at it the same way. And, uh, you know, this guy David was convinced that these, these creatures that were assaulting his family at night were extraterrestrial. 
and he desperately wanted us to come and document this. He wanted us to help him blow up the mine that was on the edge of his property. Jeez. And uh, he said he was trying to talk to the police, and they weren't taking him seriously. Uh, first he thought the locals were hazing him, and then it just got so bad he, he and his family fled their home. Uh, he went back with his brother-in-law to take some photographs uh, and, and pick up the rest of their stuff, and uh, that was the last we heard of him, and he disappeared. And that's kind of where Hellier picks up, is us uh, tracking down this case. Uh, and as we were doing that, we were finding you know, all of these different similar, uh, these similar sightings going hundreds of years back all along the Appalachians, and uh, people were just giving them different names. They were all seeing the same thing, we think. They just uh, were calling them different things, so no one really put two and two together. How do you know that this is the real deal as opposed to some trickery or they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes? I think, I mean, we initially were very skeptical of what was happening. And uh-huh. even to this day, there's still a healthy level of skepticism. We were constantly trying to uh, really keep ourselves grounded throughout this investigation because it, it does take some pretty crazy turns. So I think that's something that no matter what is always in the back of uh, our minds. And just as far as the investigation goes, we try to remain as skeptical as possible because there is a lot of people out there who could potentially be putting us on. When you were on the scene, could you feel anything strange? Was there any kind of uh, energy pattern out there? Absolutely. I mean, that was the first thing that we noticed when we got to Hellier. Uh, I've uh, kind of all described it as a feeling of having your brain sort of retuned to a location. It, it was the first thing that we noticed. It felt strange there. It felt very dreamy, like you had sort of stepped into uh, a different feeling uh, sort of a place. It was really interesting. Now, you, you broke it down into five parts, the documentary, right? Yeah, there are, uh, there are five different parts. The first part of the documentary is basically uh, just a recap of the investigation that we had done so far. This is uh, something that's been seven years in the making, um, and, and it's just kind of something we've been slowly chipping away at because there's, there's so many mysteries to unravel. Uh, so the first part is just kind of catching up, and then everything from the second episode on is the actual investigation itself. Were you happy with the way it ended up? Well, I think uh, that's, that's a really interesting question because I think that any kind of paranormal media, and, and, and even in paranormal investigation itself, it's, it never goes where you think it's going to go. Right. Very it always takes you someplace else. Exactly, exactly. And that is, is really what happened. Uh, you know, this thing started out as what we thought was going to be a very simple investigation. We were going to go to Hellier. We were going to uh, find David. We were going to go to his property, and we were going to see what was going on there. Uh, but as we started to peel back layers of that onion, we noticed that this was a bigger phenomena. This was stranger than just goblins. It had, you know, part of the reason the case even, even got picked up again was because uh, our friend Carl Pfeiffer, who was the director, uh, he experienced uh, synchronicities that were just absolutely impossible that were leading him to, to do this case. It was like the phenomenon itself was telling us, you need to document this, you need to show it to people. And now that we've done that, uh, it's, it's in the world, and we're noticing other people are starting to feel themselves being sucked into this as well. What's the link with Mothman? So the, the second episode uh, is where this pops up. 
Uh, one of the things that happened uh, a year after we got the initial emails was we got two very strange pointed emails from a man who went by the pseudonym Terry Wrist. I mean, we're pretty sure that's not his real name. Uh, he sent very strange emails that said, uh, the first one said, I have something for you, one week. Mm -hmm. And then a, a week later, to the date, we got another email that said, why did you stop when you were so close? Wow. Uh, Was he right? <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing. We, he sent us a photograph of GPS coordinates, and those GPS coordinates went to Brown Mountain, which was a place we had been just months before. Mm -hmm. so this person, whoever this is, knew where we were, what we were looking into, because we were there. Uh, initially, we were there to try and find this entrance to a cave. Aren't there strange lights on Brown Mountain? Is that the oh, same yeah, place? Seen yeah. Them. yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Brown Mountain lights. They still don't quite exactly know how they've happened. Uh, but they're these weird, wispy little little green lights that come up out of the mountains and float around. And they're not plasma balls, are they? They aren't sure. Yeah. They're not quite sure. The one interesting thing is the mountain is made out of quartz, so they think maybe it could be some expanding and contrasting uh, that's uh, making things light up and, and shoot sparks. Okay, and now back to Mothman. So this guy uh, who went by Terry Wrist, the first thing I did was I started to to look around and see, you know, who is this person who's, who uses this pseudonym. And the only reference that I could find to this, this name was in a very obscure book uh, that came out in the 90s called Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Uh, it was by uh, Alan Greenfield. And it's a, a book about using magic rituals to contact uh, extraterrestrials. Very fringe stuff, hmm. uh, nothing that I was really into at the time. And in the very back, there is an interview between Alan and this man using the pseudonym Terry Wrist. And in it, this man talks about using the secret cipher in order to uh, figure out where Indrid Cold lived. And in this, he actually uses the secret cipher to, uh, to use the words ink and black, which actually meant Indrid Cold. And in the second email that we got from this guy who called himself Terry Wrist, possibly the same guy, uh, he said that the ink in black is still isolated. Well, one of the things that Terry talks about in this, uh, this interview with Alan is that uh, Indrid Cold had been on the run and was hiding, and that the whole Mothman flap was really a distress signal. Very weird stuff, but an immediate tangible link to the Mothman case and Indrid Cold. That's dramatic. It really is. And Dana, in terms of your role here as a witch, do you use that in the investigation? Absolutely. Um, for me, I've always taken uh, magic and utilized it with paranormal investigation. So I'm constantly, you know, utilizing like tarot or creating uh, communication altars. And it kind of is just another layer that we can tap into when we're investigating. So it's always been a really positive thing for me uh, and really kind of been what drives my uh, style of investigating, I guess. As you were investigating this particular case, did you know what you were going after or did it just happen? I think I think we thought we knew what we were going after. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. Or you hoped you knew. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. We hoped we knew what we were going after. And really, every time we thought we knew what was happening it would sort of pivot and 
acclimate itself and change. So we kind of just went with it and we continued to investigate it the way that it kind of wanted to be investigated. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.